following audio is from Fathom Church in downtown Littleton, Colorado. More information about Fathom can be found at fathomchurch.org. All right. Good morning. Good to see you all this morning. Uh, If I didn't get a chance to meet you on the way in, my name's Chris. I'm the lead pastor here at Fathom. Thanks for joining uh, us this morning, Sunday morning. uh, First, today's the first official Sunday of fall. So pumpkins abound. Let us, let us drink pumpkin spice things. I saw pumpkin spice gum. No, that's a sin. Okay. I say that on the authoritative preaching platform here. I, uh, If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, I'd love for you to open them up to Genesis chapter 1, okay? Genesis 1 is where we're going to begin. We'd love for everybody to have a hand on a Bible, so there are hardback black Bibles under every chair. Uh, Genesis 1 is on page 1. Nice, okay. Uh, You can open a phone or a tablet. I'd love for you to see this stuff with your eyes this morning, but Genesis 1 is where we're going to begin today. We have a little bit of flip work to do, but... um, when we did our, uh, we, we do an annual members survey here at Fathom. And when we did our annual members survey last year, one of the things that uh, came up in multiple surveys was that you, our members, wanted some specific teaching and training on how to handle uh, current events and issues and topics uh, from a biblical perspective. Um, and so we started uh, this trend, this, this topical series called Trending, okay? Uh, we've only done two. This is our second one that we got to this year. Uh, the first one I did uh, back in March was I, I, I talked on the trending topic of uh, transgender identities. Uh, and so that was, that was something, right? Uh, you can go back and listen to that if you did not hear that. Um, and today is number two, and we're talking about the topic of abortion today. Abortion. Uh, if your news feed looks anything like my news feed, uh, it has been blown up with abortion stuff in the last couple weeks, specifically because Texas passed uh, what, what they're called calling the heartbeat bill. Uh, and, and so with that happening, I felt really strongly compelled that, that this is the time for us to preach this message specifically on abortion and the sanctity of life. Now, this is going to be a heavier one. Okay, this is a heavy topic for many of us today. And I just want to say a couple of things. First, I read a ton. I listened to a lot of podcasts, a lot of sermons. I mean, I read books, I read articles. I just kind of cobbled this this message together from a bunch of other people. So there's a lot of credit due outside of myself. Like not not a lot of this is just like Chris generating this kind of stuff. Um, But we also wanted to give give you kind of a deeper dive if you're interested on this topic. Uh, And so we've put all of our resources resources on our website, fathomchurch.org slash trending. Okay. Uh, that's the website where all of our, all of our stuff from our first trending sermon is. And there are a lot more resources at this website that you can uh, go and kind of do a deeper dive if you're interested in this topic. Furthermore, uh, if, if as I'm talking today, or as you get home and you think of something else, like a question or uh, an objection, or something that we're missing in this conversation that you'd like for us to have a more of a conversation about, uh, here's our, our phone number, our church phone, phone number, 720-507-8687. You can text in questions, and we'll do a podcast, we'll do a follow-up podcast to kind of address these questions. We did the same thing with our first trending sermon, and we did a couple of follow-up podcasts that I think were helpful, because uh, I'm not going to be able to cover everything uh, around this topic today. So uh, just wanted to throw that out there. Now, before we begin into our dialogue about abortion, uh, I want to give two disclaimers, two disclaimers. Uh, First, 
for some of uh, the women here at Fathom, uh, this isn't a topic to discuss. Okay, this, this is actually a reality that you have lived. For some of the men in this room today, right now, members of this church, this isn't theoretical, okay? This is your story. This is real life for you. Some in this church have had abortions. Some in this church have funded abortions. Some have encouraged others towards abortion. And I'm, I'm not even just speaking statistically because stats are one thing, but I know many of your stories and I know this to be a fact today. So I want to start by saying this. If you feel something today, gosh, I, I, I hope that I, my, my intent is not to offend or to hurt anybody this morning, but, but if you feel something in your heart today, I, I just want you to know that that it is a sweet gift of God through his Holy Spirit to convict our hearts. That is a gift of God, conviction. It's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. And and, and so for some of you, like I hope uh, if you feel like pangs of guilt and shame this morning, I hope that you will remember that God's offer on the table is not guilt and shame, but grace and forgiveness. I hope that you'll hear that. There is no, listen to me, there is no sin that has more power than the forgiveness of the cross of Christ. There's not one. So I want to say that off the bat, okay? We'll talk more about that at the end of the sermon. But so that's my first disclaimer. This is my second disclaimer, okay? This is not a political sermon. Okay? Like if you're, if you're a part of this church, you know this. I am not, I don't preach politics, Okay, I am not politically affiliated. We don't make endorsements on policies or politicians from our pulpit. We just don't do that. That's not how we play, okay? In fact, when, when Prop 115, this last election cycle, was on the ballot about abortion, I would not direct you as the pastor of this church on how to vote. I wouldn't do it. Okay, I just don't think that's my role from the pulpit, Okay, now, now hear me. I think what we preach should inform what you vote for. I think the Bible should bear its weight on what you vote for based on the authority of the word of God, not the authority of me, the authority of the word of God. I think it should bear its weight on how you vote, but I will not tell you how to vote. And I had people in our church who were furious, hear me, furious at me for not doing so. Furious. I mean, I was called a supporter of infanticide because I would not. But listen to me, this is not a political issue. It's not. It is a spiritual issue. Okay, this is a moral issue. It transcends politics, my friends. And I do think it should affect how you vote. But my job, my job as a preacher, as a pastor, is to expose God's word and then let that bear weight on our hearts and our souls, okay? It's not my job to tell you what to vote for. And listen to me, I've done a lot of research here. The political left and the political right have jacked this thing up. It's just, I I, I don't want to get too angry yet, okay? But like, (laughs) but I'm just saying, there's not a right and a wrong side on the politics of this right now. I just want to say that, okay? Let's get to work. Here we go. Everybody want, let's just take a deep breath first. (sighs) Okay, here we go. Genesis chapter one. 
Genesis chapter one. We are people of the book. We are people of the Bible. We believe that this book, these words of God are the utmost authority in our lives. And so we must start here, submitting under the scriptures, okay? So here we go, Genesis chapter one. We're gonna look at verses 26 and 27. Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Okay. This is uh, the, the doctrine, the creation of humanity. And actually what we find in these two verses is what's known as the Imago Dei. The doctrine of the Imago Dei. That's the image of God. Human beings, biblically, are created in the image of of God. And that means that human beings are created differently than every other living thing that was created. We are different because we are image bearers. It said that three times in that those two verses. Let us make man in our image. So God created man in his own image and in the image of God, he created him. And I just cannot tell you how foundational this is to our conversation today about life. Okay, this means the image of God, that doctrine means that human beings are different from every other animal that is on our planet. Okay, so we just have to to, to get that first. Every single human life has intrinsically more value than any animal. Okay, it sounds like I shouldn't have to say that, but I have to say that, okay? So my daughter, uh, Harper, she is six. She was playing with my mom a few years ago when she was like three or four. Uh, and and so, so my mom, grandma, she says to Harper, uh, I have a dog and a cat at my house, right? Which is a good conversation starter for a three-year-old, okay? Um, and Harper says, I really want a cat, but I can't get one because my dad's allergic, <laughs> which is true. I am allergic to cats, but that ain't the only reason why we ain't getting a cat in the Martin household, all right? I've made that abundantly clear. But my, my mom, grandma, says back to Harper, well, maybe one day when you have your own home, you could have a cat. And like without skipping a beat, Harper replies, yeah, or when my daddy dies. <laughs> So now I can't leave a beverage unattended in my home (laughs) for fear that she's going to slip something in there to out me so she can have a feline in our home. Okay. Listen, my daughter's theology way off. It's way off. My life isn't less valuable than that of a cat. And now listen, I don't hate all animals. Okay. Like don't peg me as that. I just hate cats. Okay. I don't hate all animals. I have a dog. I do. I have a dog. Her name is Betty and I love Betty. I used to say, I like Betty. She's been with us for eight years. I love her. I love Betty. She is a good dog. We just found out she has a tumor. Thank you. 
We're actually going to get it removed tomorrow. This is apropos that it's all working out like this. Uh, so we're getting it removed surgically tomorrow so they can send it away to find out how serious it actually is. Now, when the vet told me two weeks ago about this tumor, she says this. She says, if it comes back in, like after we've tested it in the bad category, I will refer you to a dog oncologist and they can start chemotherapy immediately. And then I asked a follow-up question that deeply offended her. Deeply offended her because I asked, how much is that going to (laughs) cost? Listen, that's a reasonable question to ask, but she was offended. She was offended that I would have a limit on what I would spend to keep Betty alive. Now, now, you know when I will never ask that question? If my daughter has a tumor, I will not. It doesn't matter how much it costs. I'll rob a bank if I have to. Start a prison ministry from the inside, right? Like that's how we'll do it. Because she's my girl. But this wasn't my daughter. It was Betty. And I love Betty. I do. I love her. And she has lived better than a large proportion of the human beings live on this planet. And hear me, I will very likely weep and cry when she does die. And then we'll get a replacement Betty. (laughs) And that's not harsh, y'all. That is not harsh. I have a limit and dog oncology is my limit. It's my limit. The Imago Dei, humans, every single human being has the image of God inside them and thus are of infinite value. It's what separates us from the rest of the created order. Well, you ask, uh, when does a person actually become alive? Like, when do they actually get that image of God in them? Like, I'll agree that we all are image bearers, but, but when does that life actually begin? Well, I'm really glad you asked because it's in my notes, okay? Turn in your Bibles to Psalm 51. Now, Psalm, uh, the Psalms are right in the middle, so you can kind of find them there in the middle of your Bible. Psalm 51 is where we're going to be next. Psalm 51, we're going to look at verse 5. This is what David writes. Psalm 51, 5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Okay, just that one verse. Take a break. This is King David speaking about the moment of his conception. Sperm hits the egg, conception, okay? In that moment, he says, there was sin. There was sin. Now, the question is, was that David's sin or was that his mama's sin? Like, what was that? Like, like David's daddy, uh, his name was Jesse. So was there some sort of shady business going on with Jesse's wife? I wish that I had Jesse's girl, right? Like, that's where my brain goes. In the Bible, though, we are given no indication that it is Jesse or his wife that has anything shady going on there. Plus, this verse in Psalm 51, Psalm 51 is a prayer of repentance from David after he was caught in adultery with Bathsheba and then had her husband killed. That's the context of Psalm 51, 5. And so he says, in that, I was corrupted from 
conception. I was sinful. In sin, I was conceived. He doesn't say that happened after 10 weeks in the womb. Didn't happen after the the second trimester. It didn't happen after he was born. At conception, he was sinful. And and here's the truth. Children are sinful. Every parent of a toddler is like, amen, yeah, right? It's not just nurture. It's in their nature, all right? When Harper was two, my daughter, Harper, two, she shrieked at the top of her lungs and bit me because I turned off her TV after her show was over. Listen, that was not modeled to her. (laughs) Never once have I shrieked at Marcy and bit her when I didn't get my way. She's never seen that. She was two. It was instinctual. She was sinful at conception. See, as Christians, we believe that in the womb, we have a spiritual and moral component. In the womb, we might say that the soul and the body exist pre-birth. We're not just a mass of cells. In utero, we have a spiritual and moral component. And now turn once more, this is the last flip in your Bible, I promise, to Psalm 139. From Psalm 51 to 139. This was the Psalm that was read over us. Psalm 139. Look at verses 13 and following. This is every woman's ministry's favorite verse, by the way, and they co-opted it, okay? Supplies to more than just women, y'all, okay? 139, verse 13. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. This is a beautiful psalm, a beautiful psalm. And it is telling us that while we were still in the womb, God intimately knew us. He intimately knew us. And he not only knew us in the womb, but he was the active agent informing us into the people that he designed. That's what he was doing. Okay. And he uses the language of knitting. Okay. Knitting. Now I don't knit. Didn't know if you knew that. All right. Some people think, man, that guy must knit. I don't. Okay. But I know many of you do. Many of you are knitters, especially post COVID. It's like one of the things that everybody did. They made bread and they knitted. Okay. Um, and in fact, Aubrey Porter, one of our members here, knitted this, knitted this pumpkin. It's fall, y'all. She knitted this pumpkin for my daughter last year. Actually, it's the second one because Betty ate the first one, which made the whole oncology decision a lot easier. But look at this thing. Some, y'all are going to be praying for Betty this week, I know. But, but this pumpkin, like, I think it's awesome. I mean, it's intricate. It's, it's impressive. I mean, it's not like Aubrey just, you know, took the, the knitting sticks, needle, stick, hook. There's a hook. I don't, I don't, she took those things, right? 
And it's not like just kind of accidentally, haphazardly, this thing just showed up. Right? Like, it's not like this thing just happened on accident. No, she intentionally picked the yarn. She knew that Harper liked pink, so she started knitting it together. She had a pattern to follow. Like, there's intentionality all over this pumpkin. There's intentionality, and, and that's the illustration here that, that we have. God is working in us while in the womb. He's knitting. He's intentional. He's, he, he's, he's putting his fingerprints, as it were, all over us. We're not hidden, is what it says. He saw us. He formed days for us. We didn't, he didn't form us for days. He formed days for us. It's intentional. Now, there's more places I could go in the, in the scriptures, but I, I want to pause here. And I want to say with all that Bible work, there's more, but I think even with just those three passages, we can clearly say, and this is historical Orthodox Christian theology, that the Bible teaches that every single human life is created in the image of God and that begins at conception. Sometimes this is what's known as the doctrine of the sanctity of life, that every human life is created in the image of God and that that begins at conception. So that's the doctrine And listen, that must come first. If we are Christ followers, then we have to start there. We're Christians, okay? We start with what God says, not with what we feel or what we think. We start here and then we extrapolate beyond that. But with that doctrine in place, what is in the womb? It's a baby. It's a baby. And I've read all kinds of language this week that tries to to soften that blow. But hear me, it's a baby. From the moment of conception, it's a baby. It's not a fetus. It's a baby. It's, listen, it's not a pregnancy. It's a baby. It's not what I read in one article. I read literally this quote, a product of conception, no, it's a baby. And since 1973, in the ruling in Roe v. Wade, more than 50 million babies have been killed. You can do the math, that's more than a million a year. This is what the Bible teaches that at conception, there is a baby who is created in the image of God. Now, with that said, what does science teach? What about science? Okay, because secular people are known for believing, if they're known for believing one thing, it's science. So we believe in science, all right? It's one of the most common pushbacks I get to Christianity from non-believers, okay? Do you really believe that God created everything in seven days? Do you, like, how do you explain dinosaurs? What about the flood that covered the whole world? You really believe that? You believe that Jonah was swallowed by a giant fish? Not to mention hanging a man on a cross and letting him die and then come back from the dead. Hanging your head on that doctrine feels a bit crazy, right? How do you reckon the Bible with science? Frankly, I I don't think that science and the Bible are as at odds as everybody wants to point out. But for today, in this topic, I want to look at what the science says. What does the science say? Now, here's what I found. 
from, by the way, not from like Christian organizations, from, from secular literature about conception, about fetuses, about pregnancy. At eight weeks in the womb, a baby has brain waves. At eight weeks, a baby has a heartbeat. That's why the legislature is called the heartbeat bill. At eight weeks, she's sucking her thumb. She has a functioning liver, functioning kidneys, and fingerprints. At eight weeks, she's moving and even responding to music. At eight weeks, when a sample of blood is needed, a needle will sometimes be introduced into the womb to do a heel prick, and that baby recoils from that prick at eight weeks. That's eight weeks in the womb. You know what that sounds like? A baby. You know what? Actually, it sounds like my six-year-old. Loves music, doesn't want to get a shot. That's exactly what my six-year-old sounds like. It's a baby. And the heartbreaking fact is that almost all abortions are performed after the eight-week mark. Almost all. One argument is that, well, that's the mother's body. But, but listen, scientifically, that's not the mother's body. Okay, the baby has his own unique, never-before-created, very complex mix of DNA from his mom and his dad, making him a one-of-a-kind new creation. He does not have the same genetic code as his mother. When the sperm hits the egg, there is new life possessing 46 chromosomes, okay? That's a baby. That's a life. That's a person created in God's image. See, the Bible makes the case that life begins at conception and science continues to show that babies in the womb are alive. They didn't know as much as we know today back in 73. They are not their mother's body. They are unique and distinct. And yes, they live in their mother's body, but they are not the same. So that's a little science. Now here's where the crazy begins. We have to address our cultural moment. See, back to our statement that that humans have more value than animals. Well, there are national laws that make it illegal to harm sea turtle eggs. There are, uh, uh, there's a law called the Bald and Gold Eagle Protection Act that prohibits anyone from, and here's the language, molesting the eggs of a bald eagle. Abortion is illegal on eagles and turtle babies. But Colorado is one of seven states without any term restrictions on abortion. As in, you could have an abortion if your abortionist thinks that your health is at risk, and that includes mental, physical, spiritual, I mean, a very wide definition that on the day before you were to deliver, you can have an abortion in Colorado. That's a baby. Do you know that there are what is known as fetal homicide laws? Fetal homicide laws. Uh, These laws hinge on the issue of fetuses killed by violent acts against pregnant women. There are laws like this, okay? If a pregnant woman and her baby are murdered, uh, it will be considered a double homicide. You'll get charged with two murders. But in those same states, you can pay for or sometimes have completely subsidized an abortion with no penalty at all. 
Listen, one of the, one of the trump cards that, that often gets played in this conversation is the argument of rape. And now listen here, rape is serious. It is heinous. It is tragic and horrific. I know there are stories in this church, members of this church who have suffered against this evil. And compassion and care for victims of rape is essential. I don't want to diminish that tragedy at any breath in this conversation. But the child who was conceived and the killing of that child cannot be the price that's paid for someone else's heinous sin. Listen, the answer to the evil of rape is not the evil of murder. It cannot be. It's not the lesser of two evils. It's evil. That's a baby. It's a baby. No trauma, no matter how severe and life-changing, justifies killing a baby. And I don't want you to hear me lose compassion for trauma in that statement. In truth, a very small percentage of abortions fit into this category, less than 1%, actually. So I would just say the reality of rape does not justify the widespread allowance of abortion. So because of the science and and what I would deem as kind of legal inconsistencies, um, at this point, the pro-choice movement is having to change some of their rhetoric. If you follow this at all, there's articles you can find about this. Um, The pro-choice movement have essentially stopped arguing at this point that a fetus isn't a life anymore. They've kind of stopped that because science has kind of stopped that argument in its tracks, okay? They've essentially stopped arguing that a fetus isn't a life, and they've moved to the rhetoric of women's rights. They have, okay? Uh, I found one pro-choice advocate. Her name is uh, Mary Elizabeth Williams. Uh, She's a wildly pro-choice gal, writes for the New York Times, for the LA LA Times, a lot of... uh, published articles from this gal. Here's what she said in a 2013 article on abortion entitled, So What If Abortion Ends Life? Here's what she said. I know that throughout my own pregnancies, I never wavered for a moment in the belief that I was carrying a human life inside of me. I believe that's what a fetus is, a human life. And that doesn't make me one iota less solidly pro-choice. You hear that? I mean, I almost admire her for honesty. Here's her rationale. She goes on. Here's her rationale. Here's the complicated reality in which we live. All life is not equal. That's a difficult thing for liberals like me to talk about, lest we wind up looking like death panel loving, kill your grandma and your precious baby stormtroopers. Yet a fetus can be a human life without having the same rights as the woman in whose body it resides. She's the boss. Her life and what is right for her circumstances and her health should automatically trump the rights of the non-autonomous entity inside of her always. Listen to me. That's evil. If, If all of life, all life is not equal The question is, who decides? 
Who gets to decide which lives are more valuable? See, when you say you're pro-choice, the choice is to decide whose life is more important. That's the choice. And of course, you're going to decide mine is. Well, my life is more important. Do you see the evil of that? Do you see the arrogance in that of such a choice? And then to go on and, and to conclude that because my life is more valuable than the baby's life, I can kill it. Man, listen, if you're, if you're pro-choice, uh, hear me, I love you, but that's, that's broken. That's seared. That's evil. So what do we do as Christians about this? Well, I, I do want to take a break from just this for a moment and say, church history speaks into this a little bit. The 2,000 years since Christ's life, death, and resurrection speak into this as well. Uh, church historian Larry Hurtado gives a, uh, in one of his books gives features that made the early church, the Roman church under the Roman empire, uh, unique. These traits, the four traits that he marks are the early church was multiracial, in a very Roman-based, kind of biased-centric world. The early church was about hospitality to the poor and to the sick, even at the expense of the Christian's own life. The early church, number three, was sexually conservative, as in one man, one woman in marriage. That was it for sex for early Christians. But in that culture, it was expected that a man would have sex outside of marriage with those beneath him, with slaves. It was very much a part of that culture. And number four, the early church was a community committed to the sanctity of life. Those are the four things. Now, Tim Keller commentates on this book and he notes that it is so unbelievably ironic because the, the first two marks about race and about care for the poor sound liberal the, uh, politically to us. They sound like part of the left movement politically in this country and the early church uh, being committed to sex within the bounds of marriage and an ethic of life sounds very conservative to us. Sounds like it would fit on the right side of our political platforms, but he notes that that combo of all four of those things doesn't exist in any other historical movement other than the church. And in his book, Hurtado uh, says this about the early church. This is his quote. He says, consider the practice of discarding unwanted babies, often referred to as infant exposure, typically involved casting the unwanted newborn baby on a trash heap left to die or to be collected by someone usually to be reared for slavery in the Roman Empire. This was so much a feature of the culture of the Roman period that many otherwise caring people seem to have felt little reluctance about it. That sound familiar? He goes on. So far as we know, the only wide scale criticism of the practice and the only collective refusal to engage in infant exposure in the first three centuries AD was among Jews and then also early Christians. Christians from our earliest days have been pro-life. Abortion didn't exist in the same way that it exists today back in the Roman Empire. It did exist, but in a very different way. But Christians would rescue these babies from trash heaps, saving them from either slavery or death. 
This is where we get our earliest adoption, orphanages, foster care. Christians, did you know that Christians were the first advocates against the sexual abuse of children? There wasn't a word for child abuse in the Greek until Christians created one. We were on the forefront of the slavery abolition movement. And why do you think there are more hospitals named after Christian movements or saints than anything else? The pro-life movement, hear me, didn't begin in 1973. It's been in our DNA since day one. Pro-life, not from cradle to grave, from conception to grave. So what's our response? If the church has always been a pro-life movement, then what do we do? I have four things for you, four things. And the first is this, we repent. We repent. We repent for our ignorance. We repent for our inaction. We repent for our participation. We repent for our indifference. Listen, back to what I said at the very, very beginning of this sermon. For some of us today, this isn't a trending topic. For some of us today, it's not a topic, it's our story. Some of it's a part of our story that that we thought we could hide away forever and never talk about. And I would just again point us back to King David in Psalm 51. Psalm 51, we find a man so desperate for the mercy of God. He has sinned in such a heinous way and he begs the Lord for mercy. He repents and God is gracious to forgive. David is even after this known as a man after God's own heart. And and our Bibles are ripe with stories like this. There's no sin with more power than God's power to forgive. You cannot outsin the cross of Christ. But you have to repent. See, there are members of this church who have had abortions. I know it because I've heard their stories in my office and I have shed tears with them. There are members who have supported or paid for abortions. I've been with you in these conversations, y'all. If you have stories like these in your past, the call is to repent and God will forgive. Author Dane Ortland puts it like this. Jesus sides with you against your sin, not against you because of your sin. He hates sin, but he loves you. So repentance, but, but it goes beyond that. Repentance applies, hear me, for every single one of us in this. Many of us need to repent for not, 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 not for being involved in an abortion, but by simply being indifferent to this issue. We need to repent of just thinking this thing's going to work itself out. 50 years, 50 million babies. We need to repent of thinking that it doesn't have much to do with us. Of not getting in the fight to love and to serve and to support women and to protect those babies. And we'll get into that in a minute. But the first thing we do is we repent. We repent. The second, we pray. We pray. This is not a throwaway point. This, in fact, actually is the first line of of the fight for us as a Christian. 
we pray. I hope that you've, you've seen as I laid this out that this, this scriptural and scientific and cultural stuff, this is, this is way past just making a rational argument at this point. This is way past rationale. This is spiritual. There's, there's forces at work here. There's evil at work here and we need to pray. We need to pray. We should bloody our knees in fervor over this. Next Sunday, first Sunday prayer. Eric already said it. We will spend time focusing on this issue. Please come pray with us. Please come pray. Number three, we vote. We vote. No, I will not tell you who or what to vote for. But one of the ways that Christians must fight for life is to be involved politically. I've already told you that both parties have royally jacked this thing up. They really have. Do the work, the research. They have both failed us on life. And and voting in our two-party system complicates this. It makes this very difficult. But pro-life didn't start in America. Pro-life started in Jerusalem. And like I said, Christian beliefs and practices don't fit on either side of our political aisle. So, So we each have to make decisions as to which issues are higher on our value list and which are lower on our value list. And each of us has to make these value decisions. And listen, those are tough decisions and I'm not gonna tell you how to make those decisions because we're not single issue voters. But this issue better be an issue of importance to you. At some level, As you're working through your political hierarchy, this better fit into that conversation. So no, I'm not going to tell you who to vote for or vote against, but I I will say this. Your biblical worldview should affect your politics. And I'm not, listen, I I promise you, I am unaffiliated. I don't vote party lines in anything. At whatever level you feel compelled, you need to be involved. Maybe that's writing your representative. Maybe that's running for a local position in office. At bare minimum, you should exercise your right to vote. I know that doesn't help a whole lot, but, but listen, you should vote. Number four, fourth, we fight. We fight. We fight for the lives of babies. It's a baby. We fight for those lives and we fight for the lives of women. One of the insidious messages of the pro-choice movement is that they're fighting for the rights of women while we are not. That they're pro-women, and if you're pro-life, you are anti-woman, but they think that abortion is the best way to help women. Especially poor women and minority women or young women, and it's just not true. I, I had our friend Jen Oshman, who we did a podcast with during our last sermon. She's writing a book right now. Actually, it's in publishing right now. Uh, and in researching for her newest book, she did a deep dive on, on women who have had abortions and uh, their, their psychiatric and social states after that. And this is the stats that they found. Uh, there's an 81% increase in risk of mental health conditions after you've had an abortion. 34% increase in risk of anxiety, 37% increase in risk of depression, 110% increase in the risk of alcohol use, and a 155 increase in the risk of suicide. See, the truth is, abortion is not good for women. It's not. 
It actually creates more problems and struggles for women. And as the church, we should be on the front lines fighting for the whole health of women and their babies. If, if there's a, a young girl, if there's even not a young girl, somebody who's thinking about terminating a pregnancy and they show up to this church, they shouldn't have to worry about anything. Certainly no judgment. They should never have to worry about how they're going to feed their child. They should never worry about where they're going to live. We should have, if we have extra rooms, we open them up. If there's another chair that we can pull up to our dinner table, we pull it up. They should never have to worry about childcare. They should never have to find a job. You want to see how we fight for women? We do it as a church. So we fight, we get involved. You can support advocacy centers. Okay, one that I would recommend to you is Alternatives Pregnancy Center. It's one of the best ones in town. They offer free services to women and to men. You can support them financially. You can volunteer your time. Here, here's one of the craziest things about this heartbeat bill in Texas, okay? In Texas, there are over 160 advocacy and care facilities for women. 160 pregnancy, 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 uh, advocacy and care facilities. There are only 18 abortion clinics. You tell me who's more pro-woman. 160 to 18. Get involved with alternatives. Good as you can get involved with young lives. A lot of us have backgrounds in young life. Okay, Young Life has a branch of their ministry called Young Lives. This is Young Life's ministry to teen moms. Walking with young women, young men through a teen pregnancy and into parenthood. We, we, we housed little teen young lives in this facility for years. Young lives, get involved. Finally, one ministry that has gained a lot of traction at Fathom in the last couple of years is, is foster care and the support of foster families. I mean, we featured Maddie Well a number of times who's a foster advocate in Jefferson County and a foster parent herself. She's at home with her sick foster baby right now. This is, this is pro-life. It's not posting on Facebook. It's getting in the fight. This is what Christians do. We repent, we pray, we vote, and we fight. Now, this is heavy. Uh, I know, I know. While preparing this sermon, I can't even tell you how many times I just was weeping in my office. I just cannot emphasize how heavy this is. In sadness, yes, but in anger, both. And hear me, we don't just need a burst of energy. Like we don't just need some fervor for two weeks. Like we need marathon runners. We need marathon runners. Join us next Sunday. Come before church. I know it's early. Come. We're going to pray. We're going to pray for our president. We're going to pray for our Congress. We're going to pray for the advocacy and pregnancy centers. We're going to pray that the spirit of God would move in such a way in the hearts and in the minds of Americans that we might see God do something spectacular around this horrific reality. God be merciful to us. Let's pray together. Lord, we, we humbly come to you. We see in the scriptures that, that you are the author of life, that the image of God 
It's passed from fathers and mothers to sons and daughters, from Adam and Eve all the way to us today. And that image makes every life of infinite value. Lord, let our doctrine, let our theology drive then everything else in our lives. We submit to your word. We submit to the word of God as the authority in our lives. Lord, I want to pray for men and women in this room online who have have a story that this is not an issue. This isn't a topic. This isn't something to think about or philosophize about. This is something that's deeply rooted in our story. Holy Spirit, right now, remind that, that it's your kindness that leads to repentance. That it's your great love for your sons and your daughters that you convict us. Holy Spirit, minister to hearts this morning. Remind that where repentance is genuine, redemption is free. Gotta pray for, for those of us in this room who've just been indifferent. Maybe we, in word we have been pro-life, but we've never really done anything. We've never really gotten in the fight. We've never even maybe really prayed for this. Spirit, let that conviction settle deep into our hearts that we might stand up and fight. It begins on our knees, Father, and then it moves to action. So Holy Spirit, we pray for a revival in our country, in our world, around this issue. We pray against legislation that would be pro-abortion. We pray for more creative Bills. We pray for more advocates. We pray for more care for women. We pray that nobody gets lost in the shuffle in this. But we pray for the least of these, and those are those babies. We pray for life. Lord, empower us to do what we see is your will. And so we pray all these things in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit.